We're going to read the first seven verses of Isaiah 5, remembering that the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our Lord um, remains and abides forever. It is his eternal word, never returning void, and it also always uh, bears witness to the truth. So let us give our attention to the reading of it. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And now turn with me, if you will, to our our main passage this morning, Luke chapter 20. We're going to read verses 9 through 19. If you are using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 879. Uh, Luke is the third book in the New Testament that we have been studying for some time now. I hope you've noticed. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. And he, that is Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat him and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, and this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the vineyard owner said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the vineyard owner do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. And so ends the reading of our God's word to us this morning. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it. Our gracious God... You who dwell within the pages of your word, we long to know you. We long to see you revealed in your scriptures. And so we ask that you would open up to us the beauty of your word. 
you would open our eyes and our hearts that we might behold the King of glory and that you would give us the grace and the faith to receive all that we hear and see in your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. One of the great figures in the Bible is Abraham. Most of us know about Abraham. We learn to sing about Father Abraham when we're young. He is the father of the Jewish people. And it was to Abraham that God made these incredible promises. Uh, He promised Abraham the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the great river uh, Euphrates uh, uh, has become known as the promised land, the land of Israel. Uh, He promised Abraham descendants as numerous as the sand of the seashore. Uh, He told Abraham that that great kings would come from him. Uh, And these promises, if you've read the Bible, they're well known. And in fact, occurring early in Genesis, the rest of the Bible is about God fulfilling these promises uh, to Abraham. But there's this other promise that God made to Abraham that's uh, a little bit stranger to hear when you hear it. God tells Abraham... I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. And you think, interesting. God is saying that Abraham is so important to to God and to God's plans that how others treat Abraham will determine how God treats them. That's a big statement. That that their, their futures, their... Their standing with God depends upon how they treat this one man because of all that he represents for God's plan and his work in this world. That's a big statement. But that's how it is with God. How you respond to what's important to him matters. That's how it was with Abraham. And yet even Abraham wasn't the most important, most ultimate person. Because God told Abraham that that he would have a descendant that would be born from his line through whom all of these promises, all of these plans would be fulfilled. That one descendant would be more important than Abraham himself. And as Jesus comes into this world... Those promises are fulfilled in this one man, Jesus Christ. And that means how people respond to him, to Jesus, is is more important than how they respond to Abraham. And that's what Jesus declares to the leaders in Jerusalem, the leaders of the church, God's church in Jerusalem, in our passage this morning. And really what he tells them, this is what I want to drive home from this passage, is this. Because the leaders of Israel did not honor Jesus, they were stripped of their authority and it was given to the apostles. That's what we're going to see in our passage through this parable that Jesus tells us. Uh, We want to look at this parable of the wicked tenants and, and see what it says about the leaders in Jerusalem But also, we would be foolish if we did not also ask what warnings it gives us 
as we respond to God's word and to Jesus Christ uh, this morning. So we'll look at that as well. Now, as we've been noticing through our study of Luke, Jesus was fond of telling parables. Uh, The one in our passage is about a vineyard. Uh, And it's not a new image in Israel. Uh, Psalm 80 famously calls the people of Israel a vine uh, that God brought out of Egypt. Uh, More significantly, Isaiah 5 likens the land of Israel to a vineyard. In fact, in Matthew's account of this parable, uh, the allusions to to, uh, Isaiah 5 are even more pronounced. The the building of the wall and the the vat and all those things uh, are mentioned in Matthew. And so the connection between our parable and Isaiah 5 are, are unmistakable, unavoidable in God's word. And as soon as Jesus starts telling this parable, the people know what he's talking about. They would remember what God said through Isaiah. That God said that, that his beloved had a vineyard and that he, that he entrusted it to the people of Israel. And of course, that, that gift came with expectations about how they would use it. God never gives us uh, gifts to be used for selfish gain, uh, for wickedness and evil. Uh, to, to use God's gifts for evil is to invite his judgment. And that judgment would, would ultimately be experienced uh, for uh, God's people, Israel, as the, he allowed the Babylonians to come in and, and enslave them and take them into exile. But, but to talk about God's judgment and his warnings is, is never meant to suggest that God is impatient or that he ever rushes to judgment. Quite the opposite. Judgment only comes upon Israel after many, many warnings. God wants the best for his people, and he declares that over and over. He wants peace, and he wants godliness, justice, and righteousness. And so God instructs, and he warns, and he disciplines. Judgment is always, always the last resort. And so he sent his servants, the prophets, Prophet after prophet, warning after warning, opportunity after opportunity. That's how God operates. So when Jesus says that that the owner of the vineyard sent his servants to check in uh, and, and to seek tribute that the people owed him, he's talking about the ministry of the prophets through Israel's history. And the actual number is, is far greater than three. He sent many prophets. I think the number three represents simply that the legal requirement uh, of three witnesses had been satisfied. That God can actually move to sentencing and judgment because the number of required witnesses has been satisfied. What's interesting is if you read the ministry of the prophets, uh, a great passage to read would be like Zechariah 10 or Ezekiel 34. You'll, you'll notice that, that the prophets focused on the leaders of Israel. It was the leader's responsibility to lead the people well. And to a large extent, uh, the people followed the lead of those in charge. For better or for worse, the nation followed its leaders. 
And God wanted to be clear that, that with leadership comes greater responsibility, greater accountability. Unfortunately, the leaders seem to often think the opposite. You ever heard a leader that says something like, I was put here by God. To disagree with me is to disagree with God. And to think that somehow that position of leadership gives that leader some sort of unquestioned authority. There's that temptation to think that the place of leadership, the seat of power, gives someone this this sort of sense of infallibility. We see that, don't we, with, with the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Both seek to trace their lineage uh, down some unbroken line of succession. And, and that line, they believe, gives them the seat of power that says, you can't question us. We trace our authority back to the apostles. You have to do what we say. With unquestioned obedience. But that, that's not new. Those in Jerusalem were making the identical arguments in the days of Jesus. They were making that argument long before the days of Jesus. That's the argument they made in the days of Jeremiah. We studied Jeremiah. But there was just one problem with that argument. And it's this. Being in the seat of power, being in Jerusalem, doesn't mean anything. Because Jerusalem has not always been the center of worship in Israel. When, 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 when Israel first came into the Promised Land, the tabernacle wasn't set up in Jerusalem. It was set up in a little town called Shiloh. But God had to remove the tabernacle from Shiloh because it had been so corrupt, he said, I cannot dwell in this town another day. And so in the days of Jeremiah... God tells the leaders in in Jerusalem this. He says, go now to that place, to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name to dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil my people did. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I give you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. Basically, God said through Jeremiah, have I ever been unwilling to bring judgment just because you are in the seat of power? Go ask Shiloh how that went for them. Because I'm about to do it again to Jerusalem. As Jesus is confronting the leaders in Jerusalem we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that passage from Jeremiah 7 is on his mind. How can I say it? Because he quoted the very verse right before it. I just, I just read verse 12. He's just quoted verse 11. The house that, that should be a house of prayer has become a den of thieves. Jesus is thinking about this passage. Do you think... I'm afraid to bring judgment because of where you are. God has never been afraid to remove corrupt leaders and replace them. Never. He's done it before and he'll do it again. 
So what happens after God sends his servants, the prophets, and no one listens? Well, Jesus goes on with his parable in verse 13. As a last resort, the owner decides to send his son with the hopes that maybe they will listen to him. But notice what Jesus calls the son. He calls him the beloved son. And that's taken straight from Isaiah 5, right? My beloved had a vineyard. God says that ultimately the vineyard belongs to his beloved. He's the heir of the vineyard. It's his by birthright. But you can't hear what Jesus says in this parable. That the father thinks, maybe I'll send my son and not ask, why? Why would God send his beloved son to a bunch of people who have mistreated his servants? Why would he expect any better treatment for his son than for the prophets? Would you send your child into a situation like that? But that's how great his love is for his people. It explains Jesus' tears in the last chapter when he, when he weeps over Jerusalem. It explains the persistence that he shows toward his people. And yet this title, Beloved Son, that, he, that Jesus so clearly and intentionally uses in the parable has an even more ominous background in the Old Testament. Clearly, it references the beloved to whom the vineyard belonged in Isaiah 5, but the title itself, Beloved Son, is used one other time in the Old Testament. And it was to Abraham. When, When in chapter 22 of Genesis, God says to Abraham, take your beloved son and offer him to me as a burnt offering. And so we're left wondering, as as this vineyard owner sends his beloved son off, if the vineyard owner knows that he is sending his son off to be a sacrifice, off to his death. And sure enough, as the parable continues, Jesus says that, that the vineyard tenants see the son coming and they think their opportunity has come. They, they want the son's vineyard, his inheritance, and, and they're convinced that that. This is the only way for them to keep it. That he'll, that he'll never share his inheritance with them and so that they're going to have to kill him. They're like Cain. They think there's only so much to go around. That, that the, the, uh, the only way to get ahead is to do violence to others. They want the son's vineyard, but they don't want the son. They want a kingdom, but they don't want a king. But there is no such thing. Nevertheless, they they take him out of the vineyard so as to not taint the soil, and they kill him. And they think for a fleeting moment that their problems are solved. But their problems are just beginning. Because what about the owner? Do they think... That he'll just ignore what they've done, done to his beloved son? Do they think he's just going to shrink back and say, oh, I better leave them alone? 
Of course not. He'll come. And he'll destroy those tenants who dared to lay a hand on his son. He'll come himself and he will come in judgment. He'll come in justice. And they will give an account for what they have done. This doesn't mean that he's going to abandon the vineyard. Because it's the place he loves. It's the place where he sent his servants time and time again. It's, it's the place to whom, where he sent his, his son whom he loves. And he did all that because of his love for his people. But he will remove the corrupt leaders and he will raise up new ones to take their place. Now, obviously, as Jesus tells this parable, he himself hasn't died yet. But he knows what is coming. The prophets have foretold it for years. Jesus knows that that within a week of speaking this parable, the very leaders to whom he is speaking will conspire and orchestrate his murder. And they will be judged. They will be removed from power. They will no longer be allowed to lead what God is doing in this world. The leaders in Jerusalem knew exactly what Jesus was saying. There's there's no pretense here that Jesus is just telling a nice story about some vague vineyard who, "Hmm, that's interesting. Look how they respond in verse 16. They shout out, surely not. Now, think about this. Imagine hearing this story, right? And hearing that the wicked murderers are about to be thrown out and objecting. Can you imagine sitting there watching a movie with a friend and then rooting for the villain? You'd think something's broken here. But they know that he's talking about them. And he knows that that Jesus is announcing the end of their power and their rule. He's about to take their leadership and hand it over to his apostles. At least 11 of them. The Bible even goes so far as, as to call those apostles with the prophets that went before them the foundation of God's reconstituted people. That the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Ephesians 2.20 Because, because the, the apostles will go in and they will begin the work of rebuilding. They will carry on God's mission on earth after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But even though they are called the foundation, Jesus is called the cornerstone. That language uh, that Jesus uses in verses 16 through 19 comes also from the prophets. Just as Zechariah said uh, uh, that the leaders were to be put on notice. Uh, In chapter 10, Zechariah then goes on and says, but God will send his cornerstone. The cornerstone uh, is is an architectural image. It's taken from building buildings. Um, the, the, The cornerstone was the first and most important stone in the building, typically the biggest. And it set all the angles and all the dimensions of the building. And if it was off just a little, the whole building would be off. And if it was true and right, then the building would be true and right. 
And so it becomes a metaphor for God's house, his kingdom. The cornerstone is the one thing or, or the one person around whom God's entire kingdom will be built. Like that statement about Abraham that we started with, the cornerstone is the one thing by which all other things will be measured. And Jesus has not told us uh, just who that is, but also why that is. Jesus has told us that he is the cornerstone, but more than that, he is this cornerstone because he is the beloved son. He is the eternal God of Israel, the, the God of Abraham. This passage is huge because he has announced to the people in Jerusalem that he is the son of the God of Israel, very God of very God. And that means how you respond to him makes all the difference. He is the cornerstone. The image of the cornerstone was was familiar both from architecture and from scripture, but but Jesus uh, goes straight to Psalm 118. And this isn't the first time we've heard him quote this psalm recently or, or, or heard this psalm quoted. As he was coming down the Mount of Olives, we heard verse 26 quoted. Uh, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But just four verses earlier in verse 22, we find the verse he now quotes. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. God has long foretold uh, to his people that the most important thing that would ever happen to Israel would first and initially be rejected. His coming would be announced with that proclamation, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, And we can see where he's headed with this, can't we? He's saying that that their rejection of him is proof that he is the chosen cornerstone. That his coming ends and mark to their rule, or, or marks an end to their rule, and that that their treatment of him seals their fate. And then just to make it clear, he quotes Isaiah, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it'll crush him. It's like saying, you can't get around me. You must deal with me. Bless me and you will be blessed. Curse me and you will be cursed. Because Jesus is greater than Abraham. He's the one Abraham longed for. So how do the leaders respond? They sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. They were ready to walk over and kill him. Because they, it tells us in verse 19, had perceived that he told this parable about them. They recognized themselves in it. So they hated him. They despised him. They cursed him. And they sought to destroy him. This parable is sobering. We need to never, ever, ever fall into complacency and legacy thinking. 
We can't simply think, oh, I've been a ch- part of this church all my life, I'm safe. Or, or do you know who my family is? Safety is never found in location. Safety is never found in lineage or in position of power. Safety is found only in clinging to Jesus Christ for salvation. Those who bless him are blessed. And those who curse him are cursed. That doesn't mean he's unkind. It doesn't mean he's rash. And it doesn't mean he's indifferent. Because who who is Jesus? He's the beloved son who came to call those who had mistreated his prophets back to repentance. He's the one who came knowing full well that he would be mistreated, rejected, and put to death, and yet still he came. And he suffered all of this to to rescue his own people from wicked leaders, to rescue them from their own rebellion, to rescue them from their own sin. The beloved son is patient and he is kind and he is long-suffering and he is merciful. This this parable isn't just a story. It's, It's an account of who God is and what he has done through his beloved son. The father loved his people enough to send his very own beloved son, in his only son, so that who would ever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's love. That's amazing. And the bread and the wine before us. God is putting before us in tangible ways that we can see, that we can touch, that we can smell and taste the depth of his love for us. That the Father sent his Son into this world to suffer and to die at the hands of sinful men in order to rescue his people. Because because his death on the cross, represented in the bread and the wine, is the cost of rescuing us. The corrupt leaders took Jesus outside of town and they killed him. And in that death, he purchased salvation. He made peace between sinful man and a righteous God. And God's vineyard, his eternal kingdom, belongs to all who love and bless and bow to the beloved Son. So I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive the Lord's Supper this morning. And please bow with me in prayer. Father, we confess that we are a people that are slow to bend their knees. We want a kingdom without a king. We want an inheritance without an heir. Not only is there no such thing, but anything we could invent is a cheap imposter, a miserable failure compared with what you offer. And so may we learn to delight in what you offer. May we rejoice in bowing to you. May we reject leaders who seek their own glory 
And may we find ourselves at home in no other place than the kingdom of the beloved Son. Teach us to rest in him, to stand in awe of his grace, to to marvel that, that he is the Son of God who came into the world to suffer and die and to rescue sinners like us. Amen.